Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Not to tell you, I, uh, it's been years, but I started playing Words with Friends. I have never played it. I think I started an account a while ago, and I just started playing it. And uh, I was doing really good. And then a college professor I, I went to high school with played me, and he destroyed me. And now I'm sort of frustrated. I, I'm looking at it. It's like he's getting three-letter words for like 57 points. I'm thinking that's not possible. So if you're playing Word with Friends, hang in there. Try it. I know I feel it's so out of date because it's been popular for like 10 years. Next thing you know, I'll probably sit there and say playing Angry Birds. So anyway, we have, a, uh, we have a great show today. We have a very talented actor and musician. We have Tim Russ. How you doing, Tim? Hey, how are you? Good. I'm glad. Now, now you had an audition earlier, huh? I did indeed. Yes. Now, now, what was it for? Uh, this was for a, um, a project that's just started open. Uh, just started up recently. It was a, called Blood and Oil. It's uh, Don Johnson's new series. Okay. So now, now you've been acting for a while. Yeah. Now, growing up, now you grew up in D.C., right? Uh, I know. I was raised. I was born in D.C. Okay. I raised. I was raised as an Air Force brat. So I lived all over. So now, at what point did you decide you wanted to get into acting? I know a lot of times I sit there and think. People who are raised as Air Force brats and stuff like that, they're always going to a new place, so they always seem to like they have to audition to meet right. people. Is that how you got into this business? Uh, well, yeah, I got interested into acting when I was in high school. I was like 16 years old. I just took an acting class, and uh, it was a uh, an elective class, and I took it, and it was really tremendously a lot of fun. And I did a couple of musical plays when I was in high school as well, and kind of got hooked on live theater and stage, and then I went and studied uh, after that in college. But uh, it was initially just the, the, the class and the, uh, the craft of, 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 of acting and, and also performing on stage live uh, really was a kick. And I, I was a musician even at the same time. I was playing guitar um, in a small band at the time. I picked it up and started playing, and I was performing as well in that capacity. So I think that was just in my blood to begin with. Um, and moving, of course, yeah, as an Air Force brat, that that lends itself to working in this business very, very easily. And so there's a lot of people who have been in, in the final, you sit there and go, wow, there's a, it's a very common pattern. Yes, very common pattern. Um, and it's got to be because we are moving around all the time. So you get close to people, you have to say goodbye to people, you're uh, having to adapt all the time. You don't know what's coming around the corner in terms of having to move and uh, readapt again and and that lifestyle is pretty much what it's like to be uh, to work in the business as an artist because you're you're never sure what's coming around the corner. You're never sure what's going to happen or what you have to do or what you have to adjust to or you know. And you got to play all these roles. So that's there's a there's a commonality to that. Yes. Now the music wise, who were some of the musical influences when you were younger? Because I know later in your career you got to play Robert Johnson in Crossroads, which Crossroads, which is you know, I mean that's like. If anyone likes guitar, that's the guitars you want to play. I mean, Absolutely. He's a legend. But who were some of your influences when you were younger? Oh, I had uh, a number of them. Right anywhere from Chicago to Santana to uh, some of the super groups, and later on some of the folk artists, Cat uh, Stevens, um, James Taylor, getting into uh, the pop artist Genesis, Peter Gabriel, uh, Bruce Hornsby more recently, and a few others. Um, so it's a pretty wide gamut. Also, some R&B bands, Lion Family Stone, Kuna Gang, those guys. Because I played all that music over the years. Now, when you were making decision to foray into acting mm -hmm. or music, and when you're younger, because if you're good at both, that's something that you know a lot of people they're, they're good at one or another. Right. How did you decide what you wanted to do? Well, it uh, I was doing both um, for a while. Uh, music was always pretty easy to plug into, um, just about any place that I ended up living at the time. So um, that was probably more prevalent um, in my life for many, many years until uh, my acting career basically started getting going, which was about 85 or so, 1985 is when it sort of took off, and I was able to, uh, to work full-time in it. Uh, then music took a back seat, and uh, it was a number of years before I came back to playing again. Um, I started picking up the guitar, doing some um, some singer-songwriter folk stuff, uh, acoustic, and then you know joined up with another band, and then formed my own band later on. Now, you say your career took off. Now, were you <clears throat> in L.A. the whole time, or when did you move to L.A., or were you based out of New York? Or what was your When you got done with school, what was your move? Where did you go? Um, well, when I... When I uh, Left school, I think it was 1978, and I took a couple of years off, and then I moved to L.A. in 81, uh, and I've been here for that entire time, so it's 
it's easily 30, 34 years or more that I've been here and I've, I've been pursuing, um, acting from that point forward. Um, and in 1985, uh, that's when everything sort of took off and I was able to get a good break on a feature. And then from there I went to working and mostly in television. How did it start gelling for you? Was it just one chance audition? Or, I mean, were you out there taking classes? Were you out there making your rounds? Or how did you get those breaks that started to take you off in 85? Well, it was, it was, um, I was taking classes um, just during that time and then even after that time. But most of it was just um, working in uh, theater, doing some local plays, um, networking, of course, uh, auditioning whenever I could. Uh, trying to get with an agency that was uh, able to get me into the doors. That was very difficult um, because you need somebody with the clout to get you in the doors. And if you don't have a lot of recent credits on something that's substantial, it's harder to get a decent agent to do that. So, um, you know, I was with a small agency, very small agency, and, and uh, they, they took on an agent who was very uh, uh, very hungry and, and very uh, go get them. And they, uh, they got me in the door at Paramount for a feature, and I read for it and got the role. So... The break actually came from just picking up this one particular part on a feature, which was about, you know, six or seven weeks worth of work. It was a pretty substantial project. And from there, I got on a Walter Hill feature uh, called, called uh, Crossroads, which you mentioned, and then um, a couple of commercials. Everything sort of took off. At that point, everything started happening all at the same time. And then from there, uh, once those credits were in, my agents were able to sell me for television, um, which is where I ended up going and spending and spending most of my time was doing uh, series work. Well, no, I look at I look at your resume and there's some really, like, great shows that I remember, like Twilight Zone and, and, yeah. uh, and oh, Amazing yeah. Stories. Oh, yeah. And what's funny is and how it's changed so much is I mean back back then you did a you did three different roles on Hill Street Blues, which yes. which now it's funny when you you talk to people. I see it all the time with resumes with actors who've been working for yeah. a long time. They say they go, oh, "Yeah, I played this guy one guy, then I played this guy," and and now you never see that, which is just it's I guess because there's a certain oversaturation with probably syndication and stuff. Well, it's you know the whole uh, landscape has changed. It's not the same as it used to be. Um, when I was started out, there was uh, cable television was just getting started. Uh, you didn't have uh, other series on other networks, cable networks uh, producing their own series. Cable stuff was mostly just. Uh, repeating and showing syndicated shows that had already been on television. So uh, HBO was just getting started at that time as well, showing um, showing movies mostly, and uh, and then they didn't start producing their own content till much later. So you still had the basic three or four networks doing all primetime television. There was no reality shows. There was no there were no game shows, no contest shows. It was all drama or comedy. And they were all mostly shot in L.A. So there's a lot of people, a lot of the casting and production was all done here, um, especially with the first 10 years or so. And then things started to change. But but so for that first 10 years, there was a lot of work here, actually. There was a lot of opportunities, uh, relatively speaking, for the actors in town. I mean, I would go to these, these auditions, see the same guys over and over again. And one week, one guy would get a role. The next week, somebody else would get it. The next week, somebody else would get it. And we just kept going in a rotation like that. Um, and so, yeah, I was on Ill Street Blues. I played a, a, a character on a couple of other shows. I was on Fresh Prince twice. I mean, if they like you, they'll bring you back. Uh, that's one thing. And also, you know, um, you're in the loop. You know, so it's uh, if it's a next season or two seasons later, you know, we come back and do another part and everybody's forgotten who you were and right. we're moving on. So it's perfectly okay. It's very, very different now So uh, because you have a... Uh, so much um, production is done out of state. Um, you know, it's uh, runaway production. It's done in Canada. It's done in Atlanta or New York. And a lot of shooting is outside of the city. Uh, thus, a lot of those roles are gone. And also, uh, you're doing a lot of different types of television shows as well, which are, uh, you know, uh, reality shows and uh, contest shows and game shows and things like that. And you're also, uh, you have some internet series. You do have that opening up now. Um, Amazon and Hulu and the rest of them, but but even those shows don't shoot most of the time. Shoot in L.A. They shoot outside of the city uh, because they want to keep their costs down. So you're not you don't have as many opportunities in town, and what the opportunities there are generally are not paying as well as they used to uh, in the old days, unless you're with a network, uh, an established network um, uh, show. 
um, or if it's an established um, film production company like Paramount or Sony or somebody like that. So ultimately, everything has changed compared to when I started. There simply were more work. There were more parts. There was more work available to get once you got into the loop. Well, what's amazing is in your earlier career, as you said, you started, you did work with Walter Hill. Yeah. And then you got to work with Mel Brooks, which right. is just, you know, Absolutely. just amazing because it's a comedy. And then you got to work with Bird with Clint Eastwood. Right. Which, I mean, being a musician and, yeah. you know, I mean, everyone, if you, any, if you like jazz, everyone knows Charlie Parker. You know sure. I mean? It's just, sure. if you don't know who Charlie Parker is, you yeah. something to go to someone, what the hell's wrong with you? It's the Bird. <laughs> what is that like when you, when you, you have a love of music and then you get to work with Clint Eastwood, who's, who's, a, who's a master. I mean, who is yeah. also a musically very smart. That's right. I mean, for a young actor, did you ever find that intimidating working with someone who was such a heavy hitter? Um, you know, at the time I, I was very much jazzed to have an opportunity to be on the set working with him on that project. It was a real kick. As a matter of fact, the character had was discussing the the, the changing sound of music um, um, in that scene. He's talking about what the what music is changing into, how the sound is changing, and he was very excited about it. You know, this is where music is going. This is what's happening right now. This is what's hip right now. You know, and you got to hear this, blah blah blah. So this was—he was actually talking about the change in music. So yeah, it was—it was a—it was, was a pleasure to work with him. He was wonderful, very soft-spoken, very easygoing um, uh, director and uh, an individual. Uh, it was wonderful. Um, Mel Brooks also very nice to work with, very pleasant. Um, those were good breaks for me, you know, just to get a you know a nice credit. The roles themselves were, weren't that long; they were fairly short. But uh, ultimately, just to work with him and have that credit was uh, was a kick. Now, as you worked Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, yeah. did you ever think that Will Smith would become such a megastar? Or did you think he'd be a successful, but I mean, he's become, just like Johnny Depp when you worked on 21 Jump Street. Sure. Did you ever think, I mean, it's so weird because how people, I mean, did you ever think that both these guys, you would sit there and go, oh my God, just, you know they're talented, but did you ever think they just blow up the way they did? Uh, well, I didn't, I didn't really think about it at the time. Uh... You know, I was busy trying to keep up with my own career, so I didn't really, um, I wasn't really projecting what these guys might become or might do later on. Um, I was aware of how popular their shows were and how popular they were. Both of them were hugely popular. Their shows were in the top 15, top 20. So um, anybody in the in that range would have an opportunity to step off and do other things. So uh as an actor uh, and musician, I also was an observer later on in years. I would observe uh, these guys and uh, and see where their careers went. And I did notice that uh, Johnny Depp, I noticed Johnny Depp's career changing when he stepped off of that show and then started and didn't, didn't do anything for a while and made the transition to feature films, which is not easy to do when you come off of television um, in, in, a, in a significant role. That was completely and totally out of left field. And I thought, wow, that from a career standpoint, um, from a tactical standpoint as an actor, was brilliant because he broke that mold so solidly from, from 21 Jump Street um, that he must have turned down a dozen different scripts and projects which all had the same kind of character in them because that's how this business works. Once they put you in the box, they want you to stay there. So... He deliberately broke that box, broke that mold by doing Edward Scissorhands. It was out of left field for Tim Burton, and uh, and this whole thing just be just his whole career just went, you know, uh, straight off into every other role that he played, which was completely and totally out there, non-traditional. I thought that's a very strategic and tactical, smart move to make because it keeps you fresh, it keeps you interesting. Regardless of critical acclaim, it keeps you interesting and different, and you're not doing the same note over and over and over again, and that's brilliant. Um, Will Smith made his transition from TV also to feature films, and that was also a very smart move, and he took on very, very different roles than what he was doing on television, and again, the same thing. You know, you got to break that mold, and you got to recreate yourself, and both those actors did that successfully. Now, for you... You started getting involved with the Star Trek franchise. Yes. Now, how did that first role come up? And did you think it would end up coming to the point where you did a bunch of them, and then where you end up on Voyager, where once you're once people once you're a Star Trek star of a show, I mean, you have a, a fan base forever. I mean, you yeah. can go to conventions, you can do all that. 
how did how did you get involved in that first uh, project, and how did you transit to the other ones? Uh, well, I just read for uh, the the Next Gen series um, that Roddenberry, you know, brought back and uh, and relaunched um, for the franchise, and I just read for that series and. And uh, they liked me, but uh, they didn't cast me in that particular uh, show. They brought me back to read for a regular role on the, on the second one after that, which was uh, uh, Deep Space Nine. I uh, came back and read for that one, and they did not cast me on that one. And the, subsequently, uh, they brought me in to read for the feature um, Generations. And what happened was, is I booked a role in the feature. Um, I finally booked a role on Next Generation as a guest star. And then I finally booked a role on Deep Space Nine as a guest star. So I ended up getting my foot in the door just by playing guest star roles on three of the, of the Trek projects prior to Voyager. And so when Voyager came along, uh, that role became available. It wasn't initially, they rewrote, they rewrote some things and changed some things and then it became available. And I came in and read for that, and uh, and the producers liked me for that. So uh, they had done that with other actors before. They used them several times. Again, like Kill Street Blues, we did. I did at least three different roles for the Trek franchise before doing this one. So you get Voyager, and now you expect it to go. Do you see? I mean, anything as an actor, I'm sure there's project you've been involved in where you sit there and go, man, this this thing's this thing's gonna go forever. And then you go. Mm-hmm. Wait a second. And there's projects where you sit there, and there's some projects where you sit there and see on TV, you go, how did that show run for so long? Sure. When you came in the Voyager, and because Star Trek is a bankable name. I mean, people know the movies, everything. One, as an actor, that must be great, because you are involved in something that you know is going to probably do well, but did you think it would have five seasons? I mean, what was your thinking of longevity for it? Um, Initially... uh... The only thing that I've figured on coming in, because I was aware of the fact that a lot of shows uh, get canceled, and even when people think that they're going to make it, or, or that they actually, even if they have decent ratings, they still get shot. So I had a very good feeling that the show was going to run no more than seven years, but probably close to seven years, only because the prior two shows were running that course as well. And they kind of set them up to run seven years. So I figured this one would also have a good, a decent run. Uh, of at least four to five years. So I was happy with uh, with that coming in and aware of that coming in. I had a much better shot with that show staying on the air than I would have had other shows. So um, And I was on other series pilots before then. I was on uh, The Highwayman. I was on a show called uh, The People Next Door. And those shows never made it. So uh, I had a, a fairly good feeling about this one, and, and, I, and I figured it would probably run. Uh, its course of seven years, simply because the franchise had so much muscle behind it, and and they had uh, uh, the other two shows were were had come and one had come and gone, and we were, and Deep Space Nine was still on the air, and it was running out its last couple of years. So we had uh, we were coming in, and uh, at once Deep Space Nine was gone, there wouldn't have been anything else on except our show, and so we had the only show on that was Trek, and there's no reason for them not to carry it out, and they did carry it out seven years. So how does a role like that change your career? Because as I said, I mean, I've, I've had people come on who say, like Robert Picardo was on, and he said yeah. once, you know, once you're on a Star Trek show, he said, what's great about the fans is this. They know everything about you. Like, like they sit there and they find all your other acting gigs and they become fans of your work. They really are endeared to you. What was it like for you sitting there? Because it's, it's a different kind of fan. I mean, it's, it's a fanatical fan. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the Trek uh, has uh, a very enthusiastic and very loyal following. Uh, it's not the biggest numbers in the world, um, but they are very loyal, and they are dedicated, and they're enthusiastic. And, uh, and uh, it, it, you know, it's, it, it, I'm not sure how many of them individually track um, other projects and other things that I do. Sometimes they do, I guess. Um, uh, I do know that they are there. The most of the time that I speak to them, they are primarily interested in what I did on Voyager. And then, if there's anything else that I'm working on that is Trek-related, they're very much interested in that as well. So, um, at, at the very least, <clears throat> they are dedicated to that franchise 
and the show that you were on and the character that you played, uh, first and foremost. And on occasion, you know, there might be some reference to something else you might be doing, but most of it is for uh, specifically for Trek. Now, conventions. Yeah. Now, back, I mean, when you go to conventions, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, when did this whole convention boom start? It seems like, I mean, I, I know when I lived in San Diego years ago, Comic-Con was nothing back then. I mean, this was, mm-hmm. this was like 15, 16 years ago. I lived in a gas lamp, a, a loft, and yeah. on the weekend, you'd, you'd be like, hey, wait, there's some people dressed, you know, going to the convention center, which wasn't, yeah. it was the old convention center. And then all of a sudden now, I mean, it's blown up bigger than Impossible. Yeah. When did you start doing conventions? And, and I mean, and just is it, is it, have you seen them change a lot? Um, no, I started doing them the very first year I was on the show. It was within three months of the show airing. Um, I booked my first convention, and then from there, uh, it, I've been doing them for 20 years. Um, do people and, come up to you and say, like that first one, do they go, hey, man, hey, hey, there's a convention. They'll love you there, or is it something you actively sought or your management sought? Oh, no. I mean, at the time, I think uh, they approached, uh, some of them approached my manager and agent, about booking the shows just because they couldn't reach me any other way. Um, I didn't have a website. It didn't have my uh, email out there where people could get a hold of me. So they, they approached my manager and my agent at the time and said, hey, you know, would he be interested in doing that? Uh, some of those conventions are booked by promoters. Uh, I mean by people who book guests for the convention. So they have a beat on uh, all the shows. They have the, the roller decks that has all the numbers of the promoters in it, and they just... They call them and say, well, who would you like to get? Or they call them and say, can we get, can you get us, blah, blah, blah. So uh, some of the shows I do are booked by promoters, uh, bookers, and others are booked uh, straight through me uh, these days. And um, and so, yeah, they just got a hold of me. I can't remember if it was my agent or my manager at the time. I forgot who I was, but somebody got a hold of me and said, you know, would you like to do this show? And um, and that was it. And then from there, you know, the, all the conventions have been basically the same. They've just gotten bigger over the years. It must feel great, though, if you go to a convention yeah. and people are <clears throat> lining up. I mean, you know, there's all there's all a certain thing of getting noticed somewhere. Like if you're out, hey, there's, you know, there's Tim, yeah, you know. But when you're going, it's almost like an adoration. I mean, it's I mean, it must be a great feeling to sit there and know that these people enjoyed your work i mean and just will sit there and line up and you know ask for your autograph and get pictures that must be a great feeling yeah well it's uh it, it's the double-edged sword because if you're uh, for me and for most of us i think uh, you'd want to you you are very appreciative of the fact that you had a fan base that provided um the, the foundation for a television show that you were on. I mean, without the fan base, there would have been no Star Trek. They never would have brought it up and they never would have brought it back. Um, they wouldn't have made another three movies that they're making now. So, you know, uh, to, without the fan base, I would have not have had that break in my career, uh, which was very beneficial to me, uh, not only from a career standpoint, but opportunities and financial uh, gains. So, Without that, without them, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So, giving if you go back to the conventions, um, there is that appreciation for them, uh, really being enthusiastic about the show. The other side of the sword is that you know, for me, um, you're so I'm so it's such a long time ago that I've done it creatively. I've moved on to other things, and I and I want to pursue those other things, uh, not only in front of the camera but behind the camera. I've been doing it as well. And so, um, the, and so when you, if you go to a convention, you know, it's, it's mostly about what you did 20 years ago. Right. So creatively, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a dead end for me because I'm talking about some things that I've probably forgotten more about than I can remember. And, um, so, and this, and at the same time, I'm trying to put myself forward in terms of doing other projects and other types of roles and other types of things, which I would rather get out there and get uh, and have exposed and talked about and whatever. How do you sit there and get to the point where you can make that break? Because as you said, it is a big, it is a big following. And since you're through career and you've, and the thing about you is you've gone from comedy back and you've hit different markets with the younger market, the older markets. But for you, how do you sit there as an actor, a trained actor and sit there and you have this role, which is great. And you get, you know, acknowledgement from it. But how do you sit? What is your process where you start to say after Star Trek Voyager gets off the air? 
What do you say to yourself that sits there and goes, you know what? Okay, I got to make a break. How? What do you do? Uh, once you're coming off of a show like that, you're uh, you're exposed um, on television. It doesn't matter whether it's Trek or anything else. Um, it's the same situation with any series. Once you're on a show for a while, first of all, you're out of the loop in terms of reading for casting directors and things like that because uh, you're not available. And also, uh, you've been exposed on television, on someone else's network, on somebody else's show, playing someone else's character. And when people want to put together a new show, a new project, chances are they're going to go with somebody who is not familiar so that that character becomes only associated with their show. If they put you on it as a regular, they're going to people, then the first thing people are going to say is, oh, that's blah, blah, blah from the other show. And you, the, you would think that the fan base would, be, would work in favor of the producer who's putting you on their show when you've got such a name recognition from another show. And in some cases, that does happen. But more often than not, the network doesn't want you on their network if you were, you know, on a regular running show for so many years on someone else's network. There's actually a word for it that I've heard bandied about called contamination. They use it as, uh, you know, well, if you're going to work for ABC, but I just came off a series for NBC, ABC is not likely to pick you up for their series. Not for a while until people have forgotten about that show. So uh, unless you're the top-tier lead actor in a series and you carried a series successfully for 10 years or 7 years or whatever it is, then they might take you and they might create another show around your character because it's the same character. So it's spin-off, if you will. Uh, and then they'll put you on and you can keep working. But most of the time, if you're one of the regular actors, supporting actors, you work on a big successful show, comes off the show, chances are... Uh, if they're doing something else, they're not gonna. They're, it makes it harder for you to get booking on those kinds of shows because you're not you're not only from another network and another program, uh, but they want a fresh face to launch their show, and so that you're only associated with their show. When you're doing publicity or when your fans are outside, they're only gonna know you from their show right. and not from someone else's show on someone else's network. And that's generally how it works. I understand their circumstance. I understand why they do it, you know. So you can book, you know, it's easier to book some cameos here and there and some guest star roles here and there and, you know, some other things here and there. But you basically have to lay, kind of lay low for a couple of years, uh, relax, chill out, do some other things, do some stage, do whatever, and then recreate yourself by, again, choosing roles that are if you can get them as far away from what you did before as possible so that you break that mold again and then you recreate yourself, you relaunch yourself as somebody new and different. That's how it works. Now, for you, you're directing. Yeah. Now, at what point in your career, I mean, when you started out acting, did you say, I want a director where you on set sometimes and going, well, I, I could probably do that. When did you decide that you wanted to make a conscious effort to direct, and how did you get started with that? I started on, on Voyager. I had a chance to uh, to intern for three years on the show. The producers were very gracious, and it was a tradition for them to allow the actors to do so on all three series. Um, and um, so we, I, I approached them. They said, yes, if you're serious about it, here's what you have to do, and I'm going to know. The producer says, I'm going to know if you're going to all these sessions and if you're showing up to do all this stuff and if you're watching and listening. Uh, and we're going to follow that for about two or three seasons and see if you're ready to go. And we'll give you a show and see how it works. And sure enough, I did all that footwork. And then they gave me a show and they didn't ride my back. They weren't hovering over me. They weren't uh, complaining about what I shot that day or this day or whatever. I, I honestly don't know if they were super happy with the episode that I did or not. I never really got a tremendous amount of feedback one way or the other. Uh, I thought the show came off very well, and the episode came off very well, and it was great. I didn't get a chance to direct another one at, before the series went off the air because I got started much later than everybody else. But uh, I did have that credit. I got uh, a chance to do it, and um, and I spent a lot of time in, in, the, uh, in the sort of learning process by sitting with uh, the editors and watching and learning that way. Um, and, and it was, it was, it was right. I took a couple classes outside of the, uh, the studio as well, independently. And that was even before I got on the show. 
and um, and so I was interested in it after that point, and I had a break. They they simply let you gave the opportunity to do so, and that's basically the best time or best opportunity to have when you're on a series like that, and you know the producers as well as you do, and you know the camera crew and the DP and everybody else. You know how the show looks. You know your colleagues. You know how difficult can it be to do some you know observing and um, and learning and studying and uh, watching. And then be able to pitch yourself as you know, doing one of the episodes. And your your DP is going to come along right next side of you. And they're going to, you know, they know how everything looks. They know how the show is shot. The show has a certain look and feel to it. Um, you can't come in there and do a bunch of things that they don't typically do. Because the show has a look and feel. And it's consistent. And uh, this show was no, no, no different than that. The producers, there were things they liked and things they didn't like. And you learned all that prior. And uh, I spent a lot of time with the editors watching them how they assembled the scenes, which which was really the learning process that was the most valuable, was watching how the raw footage was cut together so that you would know, you know, when you, when you put together a scene that you're directing and shooting, you have to know editorially, you have to see that scene in your head before you actually do it. So you know what you need and what you don't need and, and how everything's going to cut together. If it doesn't cut together, it's not going to look very good in post. What's it like directing yourself? I mean, it's something like, I mean, it must be like anything you're, you're conscious when you act, you probably sit there and go, okay, but when you sit there and you have to sit there and cut, let's say cut yourself if you don't it's, know. It's, it's distracting. I mean, I don't particularly care. To, I don't care to direct myself in stove because it's distracting. I have to, it takes a, um, it takes too much focus on, on one thing or the other to, uh, to jump in and out of camera. Um, you know, for anything more than, you know, he went that away or something like that. I mean, I, it's not, I don't enjoy doing it. Uh, I've been asked to do it a couple of times here and there, but I don't like doing it. I'd rather just be on one side or the other of the camera and call it a day. Because you, you, you're never, you're never 100% prepared to do the acting role. And, and it just takes away from the time you're spending in front of the camera, I mean, behind the camera. So it tends to lose something in front of the camera when you're distracted because you have, to, because you're directing. You know, and you're not spending a lot of time looking at what you're supposed to be doing in front of camera. I mean, that's very much last minute, you know. Um, so it's not easy to do. I don't, I don't enjoy doing that. And there are some directors who direct entire movies that they're in, playing the lead roles, carrying the whole film, and they're directing it as well. I'm saying, how the hell are you doing that? And I don't know how you're doing that. To me, that's just more or less. I would be handing off the 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 work to the DP. You know, and only focusing on bits and pieces of the directing because you'd be distracted by what you have to do as an actor. Now, you've also done some voice work. Yeah. Now, how does that transition happen? Because it seems like, I mean, you've been lucky where you've acted, mm-hmm. you've directed, you've written, you've done voice. I mean, so how does the voice work come in? How did you get into that aspect of your career? Um, I started doing voiceover work uh, while I was on voyager um i did audio books i did two or three audio books no wait a minute four or five i think it was four or five audio books that i did um and then from there from there i went off to doing uh some narration not much narration but from there often to uh doing um commercials here and there uh video games and then a couple, uh, a couple of radio spots, video games and things like that. Uh, and that's where that kind of took off into. It was over a period of time that that sort of grew. Uh, and, and right now it's sort of at a plateau. I haven't, I haven't broken into um, as much commercial work as I'd like to. Uh, that's the target that I'm looking at. And, and I did some animation for a TV series as well for Cartoon Network playing a character role on that. And those two areas are the areas I'm trying to, uh, would like to crack a little bit more. So is uh, TV animation and also on-air um, television VOs and uh, radio spots. In your career, as you've been working, you know, in the dramas and after Voyager and stuff like that, then you ended up on Samantha Who, right. which, by the way, my girlfriend loved that show. <laughs> She's like, I love that show. And now what was that like now? You go from a drama to you're going to a sitcom. I mean, right. acting's, act, I mean, every actor loves to act. But it's it's a completely different animal. I mean, you're going through a very more quicker process. Were you excited to go for the sitcom? I mean, have you been a fan of comedy a lot of your life, or have you 
Have you like taking the heavier, meatier drama roles? Oh, I like the comedy. Uh, whenever I get a chance to do it, I do enjoy doing it, especially if it's done well. And that show was uh, exquisitely written. Um, it was one of the best written comedies I think I've ever watched, to be honest with you. It's a, it was so subtle and so, so well done. Um, you had to, you had to pay attention to that show. It wasn't dumbed down. It was smart, smart, and it had very talented people on it. Um, Christine Applegate and Gene Smart, and of course, Melissa McCarthy, who's exploded into comedy. Um, uh, it was a wonderful break for me, and I also played, the majority of humor I played on there was 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 fairly dry. I didn't do too much broad humor on there. It was an hour, it was a half hour single camera show, so the pace was much more like film, and um, and I got a chance to do that stuff and kind of keep it very subtle and understated, and I love that. That's the kind of humor I end up doing mostly, is, is the dried out sort of uh, understated, very subtle humor. I enjoy doing that stuff. I can do broad, but I typically don't book that kind of stuff. So it was a wonderful departure from what I'd done before. It was a it was a good show. It was very successful in its uh, in its uh, time slot for the first season. We had a writer's strike that kind of broke things up, and everything got shoveled around. And then you know they put us in a different night, and it didn't work out as well. So yeah, the show had tremendous potential to stay on for several years. I don't know, you know, I'm not sure why they pulled it. It was a very good show. Dry humor is also one of those things that it's uh, you have to be able to deliver. I mean, it's it's yeah. not you know broad humor is it. You can be like, I mean, anyone anyone's gonna sit there and laugh if a guy slips on a banana peel. Yeah. But if you dry humor, first of all, you can't be too smug, and yeah. you just know. I mean, where do you think you learned that timing? Well, I think it's just part of my uh, it's part of my nature and part of my personality. Um, it's just the way I walk and talk has a lot to do with it. There are some people who are very animated in their real lives, and that can easily translate to uh, to working on film, as opposed to some people who have a very flat affect, and they may have a monotone voice. They may have something about their delivery and their walk and talk that makes them that makes them very um, easy. It makes it very easy for them to do that dry sort of style humor. And I, for me, that's just the way my personality is, in part, um, for doing that kind of thing. You know, if it's something that's broad, it has to be tailored for me and it, or has to be a good fit for me. Like, what kind of comedies do you like to watch? I mean, not, not, like, I mean, if someone says, are you a Woody Allen fan? Or are you, what kind of, I mean, what kind of fan are you if someone says, hey, man, we want you to go out and laugh? What do you sit there and go, I'm going to go check this out? What do you use, what would you look at? Well, you know, uh, there are certain aspects of uh, com comedy that comes from England that I enjoy watching, which is a lot of times I use embarrassment. And things like that, and they do things that are understated and subtle from time to time as well. Uh, I like their style of humor. Um, as far as shows, Naked Gun, or the original series of Naked Gun, was one of my favorites. Um, all of that was understated. All of that was subtle. All of that was, and the humor was in the background, not the foreground. I love that style. Uh, recently, Guardians of the Galaxy had a great deal of humor in it, and I enjoyed that humor as well in that film. It certainly wasn't all dry, but there was just a certain a certain way in which the film is done. I also enjoy good satire. I love good satire. Um, Johnny English is one of my favorite uh, sort of uh, spy thriller uh, satire comedies. I enjoyed the style in which that was done in um, uh, and the setups and the circumstances. I like the humor to come out of the circumstance. I like it to be organic. I don't like it to be forced or something that everybody else does every time, like, oh, whoa, I didn't see that coming. You know, I mean, that that stuff is just so overplayed, you know, bumping into things and all that slapstick stuff. I don't really, that doesn't do anything for me. What does it for me is, uh, um, you know, things that are unexpected. The unexpected is really what makes, to me, the funniest stuff. I'll give you an example of the film The Other Guys. Will Ferrell was in it, um, Mark uh, Wahlberg, and the opening sequence of the two uh, badass cops jumping off the building you know, doing this, that, that same, you know, right. we've seen it a million times gag of jumping from this impossible height onto the back of a truck or a tree or whatever it might be and, and surviving. Well, they jumped off this huge building, you know, about to go try to get the bad guys who were getting away and they both land in the tarmac face down. They're dead. And I just never, I was not expecting that. And right off the bat, I was cracking up, man. There was a lot of understated stuff in that movie. So, the understated stuff I, I like, the satire, taking a good concept and just having a go at it, 
but doing it in a, in a, a little bit more subtle way than, than overtly, you know, and, 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 uh, there's so much, I mean, that's just one example. I just, if I give you examples of the projects, the other guys, Naked Gun, um, recently Galaxy, uh, Galaxy, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, I loved, uh, so there's some good stuff in there, but the majority of those other two are in that style and in that vein. I really you know Johnny English again. I mentioned that as well. But um, yeah, there's some good stuff in there. Now, with a sense of humor, now you also ended up being on iCarly, which once again I thought, and I, I honestly, and I, my friends, are like, what's wrong with you? I used to flip around, and occasionally if iCarly was on, I would watch it because yeah. one, because Jerry Trainer was, was funny. Jerry Trainer is brilliant. I was sitting there going, this this no, kid I, he yeah, cracks you up. Majorly funny. And that show I enjoyed, and I my friends like. Dude, man, you don't have kids. I go, I know, but it's funny. Now, for you, what's that like when you're on a show like that because you're playing a principal? Yeah. And there's lots of kids who watch that. Yeah. And you know what kids think of principals? I mean, it's like, I mean, what? how is you, that must have been a whole different crowd that started to follow you. Yes, oh, yes, you, yes, yes. Because yes. it's not like when you go out and the kids are different. I, I always talk to people who have been on kids' shows. Yes. Kids aren't afraid to go, oh, my God, oh, my God, there he is. That's <laughs> right, yeah. The, the the recognition for that is almost, uh, it can be almost a double what it is for Voyager. If I'm just going through the, you know, walking down the street or, you know, uh, places where there are young people, um, they will immediately pick me out for that show, a tremendously popular show. Um, the producer on that was, was uh, hands-on and... and uh, and really talented, and put that material together uh, successfully. The cast was amazing. Jerry, all the, the kids were amazing. The change for me was working as a recurring actor on a Nickelodeon kids show. I'd never done that before. I did do a, a spot on uh, Hannah Montana, which was the first time I did it, and that was interesting. So taking the recurring role on Nickelodeon show uh, uh, like that for that number of years over you know over time. Was a was an experience, um, you know. They, like I said, they worked you really hard um, to to get all the material and the takes and the dialogue that they wanted, and that thing comes out smelling like a rose when it's all over. Um, so, uh, yeah, a totally different fan base, totally different crowd of of uh, age of fans and things, and uh, and almost twice the recognition from that as I get from Voyager for having only done five or six eight shows. Now, you're still playing music. Yes. And you've had, what, four albums you've recorded? Uh, yeah, I think four now, totally. Yeah. Okay. What's your process? Because I, I, I'm always fascinated by musicians because you do, do write the music and you write the songs. Not all of them, no. Um, I only write a handful of tunes now and then. As a matter of fact, most of the writing I've done recently has been for specific projects by request. And um, they've been for tracks for movies. Uh, most of the stuff I wrote, wrote before that was just now and then when I was inspired to do so. Um, the majority of material I do is either recorded by, you know, it might be a track that I hear somewhere on the radio. Uh, hell, it could be in Starbucks. You know, if I hear a tune, I like it. Hey, what's that song? I'll grab it. And I might, uh, or, you know, you know, adapt it to my live performance with my band. And then we'll play it for a while. And if it comes together and it's tight, um, if I get enough of those songs, then I'll just put them on a CD. It takes time between the records uh, to accumulate, you know, f in 9, 10, 11 songs that you want to put on there. So a lot of it's just by material that I pick up here and there. It could be a soundtrack to a movie, could be uh, on the radio, could be somebody sent it to me and thought, hey, this is a great tune, check it out. <laughs> I just picked up three songs recently that a buddy of mine sent to me. I liked all three tunes. So if I was to go back in the studio again, I might record at least two of those three songs over time. So we, I'll play them live with my band. I play in, in town all the time. And uh, we'll play them over a course of a number of months or a year, whatever it might be. And then over time, I'll collect all these songs that haven't been recorded yet and then put them all in one CD. Now, what's your band called? It's under Tim Russ. It's Tim Russ and Crew. Now, how do you put a band together? I mean, is it, do you get other actors you work with? Or, I mean, how do, I always wonder, it's like, you know, you see, like, I know certain actors who, who they work on a set, they go, hey, hey, we all play, so let's play. And I know comics who've done that. You know, they, how do you how do you go about putting a band together? Um, well, uh, this one was kind of, um, 
uh, over time, the first band I put together when I, when I moved to town, which was in the 80s, I put a band together and I performed for about two years. I made a living at it actually for, had paid my rent and bills as working about four or five nights a week, you know, three hours a night. And we, uh, I was playing on the west side of town at a club out there and doing top 40 only. And I, uh, I put the band together because I met these guys on a, I was doing a, a play, an equity waiver play. They needed um, somebody to play the music for the play because it was a musical and a sort of a pop sort of style. I played bass for them, and this guy played piano. And then we had somebody playing percussion, kungas. And uh, I talked to the keyboard player. I said, hey, why don't we put together a band? He was hip to that. He was studying music at the time. And so we formed a band. Um, he, the, the, the percussionist we got to, to, to play drums for us. He played keyboard. I played bass. That was our trio. And then um, I played guitar as well. And I had the keyboard player play bass on his keyboard. So we had, you know, that's how we put it together. And we played for two or three years. And then we broke up. Uh, and then after a while, I played solo. And then I was approached by uh, the guy who, um, uh, Neil Norman, who runs uh, Crescendo Records. And he had a big, huge band, and he said, look, I'd like to come in and pl uh, play some of your material with us or sit in with us and sing some songs. And so we, we did. I did that for a while with his band at some of the gigs he was doing, and then he wanted to record a CD with me, and we recorded a CD with myself and his band. And that was the first one I did, and then we toured overseas for a little while. Uh, connecting some of that tour with conventions and things over there, and then came back to the States. And then after that, I started recording my own stuff, and I hooked up with his keyboard player and a drummer who I played with uh, when I initially started out in town. When we were playing on the west side of town, I had a drummer, Jim Martin, who was very good. And I got a hold of him and said, Jim, would you like to come and play? And so I had at least a three-piece and a power trio thing. And it worked fine. It's been working pretty well. Um, and so it's a lot of some serendipity and some just, you know, networking and hooking up and all of a sudden or being invited, as it were. Yeah. Well, now, you know, you've, you've had stage background and you've done the music. Yeah. Any parallels between them that you feel? I mean, or is it, or is it two different, totally different animals? Well, yeah, no, it's uh, well, the music is uh, is a live performance and so is a stage live performance. The difference is that on stage you're typically with other actors doing um, telling a story. And you have an audience that either, you know, as if it's a comedy reacts when you're doing it or gives you an applause afterwards. It's a live stage is live stage. And it's it's just two different types of performing um, as a band. For me, I'm out front. It's me and my band. And I'm the one that's doing basically leading that whole show. And it's a show uh, where the theatrical performance might be something uh, a little bit different than that uh, in, t in terms of how it's how you're viewing it. Uh, the play is going to be an ensemble as you tell the story uh, to the audience. And it, uh, the, the similarities are definitely that they're both live audiences, but the performances are very different. Music is a different effect on people. Um, and, it, and I think it's a little bit broader in spectrum. You're playing some really good stuff, you know, that's easy to understand, easy to listen to. I want to say the words easy to listen to. You don't have to, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry about how to interpret it. Um, you generally can captivate a number of people. They'll all basically tap their foot and listen to what you're saying, and you know, and 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 re and respond to that. And it's uh, in that circumstance with the band, I'm in charge of all of that, and driving that and structuring that. Whereas in a play, the play is already structured and it's an ensemble, so you're not driving it. You're a character within the story, and that, as far as performing, is a very different thing than playing music live. Well, now you have a, a directing-wise, you have the new uh, the Renegade star. Uh, yeah. But now I noticed you did a, a project called Bloomers. Yes. Now it, it says you directed 21 episodes. Did you really get some directing chops when you did that? Did that really help you directing so many episodes? Um. Yeah. Well, in Bloomers, there was 20. There we did a whole bunch of. We did two seasons. We did. Uh, I think we did 20, 15 episodes the second season, and I think we did 10 or 11 the first season. I split. Directing duties with one other director, um, uh, Henrik uh, is his name. He directed uh, about 30, 40, 50% of those. So we split the duties. If he couldn't make it, I could do it. If I couldn't make it, he could do it. I couldn't do all of them because typically you're, you, you want to have some time to prep for, the, for each episode. You have to figure out what you're doing. So 
So uh, we split the duties on that. So I probably, out of those shows, I directed at least half of those. And uh, yeah, any any chance you get to direct for a project, um, if it's low budget, like this one was, and we have to shoot a lot of pages a day, then yeah, that's a really good training ground for for being able to think on your feet and being able to have an A and a B and a C plan uh, when you have to shoot a lot of pages and you don't have a, a lot of time to do it in, and yet you still want to tell the story and let, you still want it to look good. So it's a very, a very good training ground shooting those kinds of projects. Um, there were days when we had to shoot 13, 14 pages a day or more. And, um, that's a lot of setups and a lot of dialogue right. and a lot of, a lot of stuff. So it's very good practice. Um, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like training, you know, for the Marines. I mean, it's just on and on and on and on very long days as well. Um, and so, yeah, it's very cool. I, I, it was, it has been, and also uh, working for um, uh, shooting uh, reenactments for um, crime shows. I did that for about two or three years as well. And those were the same kind of thing. They're, you know, you're thrown into this this day of shooting with almost no prep. And uh, you have to figure out what you're going to do for this shot, <laughs> this setups, in, uh, within hours to get it right. Now, how did the Star Trek Renegades come up? That was just a phone call. That's all it was. Um, uh, the same producer and I worked together on Gods and Men, Star Trek of Gods and Men. Years before that, same thing. It was a phone call. We didn't even have a script. He just called and said, hey, would you be interested in directing it and being in it? Yeah, okay, what are we doing? And he, he said, well, here's the project, here's the concept. And then they write the script, and we go back and forth on the script to develop it, and then uh, we go ahead and shoot it. And that's nothing more than a phone call. It wasn't. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't my. I wasn't even thinking about it. He just, you know, he called me and said, you know, I'd like to do this, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna crowdfund it this time. Is what he said. Was it enjoyable for the fact that you got your your got your start directing on a Star Trek episode, and now you're coming back? It's like a full circle because it's it's more than an episode. It's it's a TV movie, I believe. Um, yeah, it's designed as a pilot. So I mean, series, it, yeah. How does that feel? Because you're, I mean, you're making a full circle. It must be great to sit there and go, you know, I'm, hey man, I'm still doing this. I'm still, I'm still, I'm still directing. I'm still acting. I mean, it must be a great feeling. It must be a great feeling of accomplishment. Well, you know, the the um, the directing has actually been going on since I left Voyager. I was directing for about two years almost without doing much acting at all. Uh, again, I was working on uh, the shows for Discovery and TLC. I was doing some of their uh, crime drama reenactments, and I shot those for two and a half years, and then moved on to uh, to shooting other projects and, and films. I worked on a, mo a movie, a comedy called Night at the Mo si Night at the Silent Movie Theater. Did that as well. Gods and Men, of course, Bloomers, and then uh, Renegades. Uh, so, uh, and I just finished shooting a pilot in Sacramento called Relic for TV. It's a TV pilot uh, presentation. So um, all of those projects, uh, have, the directing has been going on since getting off of Voyager. And the only, you know, hassle sometimes is just being able to work the directing in with the acting gigs because scheduling wise, it can be a nightmare. And I'm working uh, with the Prospect House Pictures right now on in development on a uh, a feature called Knights of Mary Fagan, which would be actually a pretty good size budget. And I have uh, another producer I'm working with, John Mocked, who's uh, who's been in this business for 35 years. And we're also putting together a couple of series projects and feature projects as well. So there's going to be some things changing in the next two or three years. What was it like being in Sharknado? The only reason I ask is I had Anthony Ferrante uh, after Sharknado 2, he was on the show. Yeah. And he was sitting there going, well, I think we're going to get a Sharknado 3. And that's one of those movies that anyone can sit there and you can, I mean, it gives hope that something so bizarre can just, I mean, when you first sit there and someone goes, hey, yeah, there's going to be three of this Sharknado, you probably, most actors are going to go, what are you, crazy? But it just hit that certain nerve. What was, the, did, did they just call you for that? Or what was, <laughs> did I, you want to do it? Were you excited? They call, uh, the, I know Gerald Webb who casts for Asylum and he, uh, he has worked, I've worked with him on two other projects prior to that. And so, um, and I owe him a great deal. He's, he's very cool because he called me in, you know, to, to come and do these roles without having any, or he just come in and do them, you know, the straight offers. And I, I really appreciate that because then he, 
they respect your talent and ability. You don't have to come in and show them what you can do. You've already got a track record. So I really appreciate that when it happens. Um, and it happens more often now than it used to. Um, but he called me the night, the night before I was supposed to go work on this thing because the actor that was playing the role had uh, had a family emergency, so he dropped out. And so Gerald just said, oh, let's call Tim, see if he's available. I said, yeah, sure. I got to play a military character. Wow, what a surprise. Something I, I've only done a million times. I can go do that. <laughs> and he uh, he called me, and and, uh, and it was the night before, and he said, Chardonnay 03, I said, you're kidding me. He said, yeah, Chardonnay 03. I said, and I laughed, you know, had a good chuckle. And I thought, well, you know, um, it, it's, a, it's a day or two of work, and uh, it's a good cameo. Let me go and do this. So I went in there, and he, you know, I realized it, and when I got there, they had like, you know, that I uh, heard that they had like 30 or 40 celebrity cameos already signed up to do this thing, and it was getting press out of the, you know, off the chart. So I said, like, wow, that's that's actually cool. So I got on there and uh, and played that role and, and eventually got eaten by a shark like everybody. But I had never actually seen the first two. I'd only seen excerpts. I never really watched the first two. And, I, you know, I, that, that kind of sci-fi really isn't isn't really to my taste, but... You know, the fans out there just ate it up. I mean, you can't, if you got numbers, man, for people watching it, you, then you that's what you get. That's, you got to run with that. And sure enough, they did. They ran with it big time. Everyone was, every, everyone was jumping in this movie. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was, <laughs> the publicity was way out. It was just crazy. Um, and, and to do a cameo with that many people, I think it's just a kick in the pants. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. We only have a few minutes left. Yeah. Um, I look at your IMDb. You have so much stuff in post-production and completed. How do you keep it? Like, how do you keep it all in your head? Because there's like seven or eight projects right here. How do you sit there and go, okay, this is coming out? Or they're doing this. How do you keep that straight? Oh, I generally, <clears throat> I generally don't. Um, I don't have anything to do with that because I'm not producing them. If I was producing them, I would say that that could be a bit of a juggling act, but. My work is already done on them. So after that, it just comes down to when do they screen, when are they sold, when are they distributed, when are they going to be seen, and that's it. All I want to find out is, you know, when are they going to be released, how can people find it, and where can they see it. And they'll, they'll let me know all of that when it happens. So I don't really think about those projects because I'm not, in those cases, even, even behind camera, if I've directed them, um, there are certain steps that I am involved with in post-production, uh, primarily the edit. Once the edit's done, then there it starts to slow down. So that part of post is not as hectic as the beginning part. So, um, and even the, even after that, the main work for those is pre-production and then shooting. Uh, as far as being behind camera, if I'm an actor, as soon as the shoot's done, I'm done. I'm moving on to something else. I have nothing to do with it after that. Now, do you have any gigs coming up for your guitar? <laughs> yeah. What do we got coming up? We've got um, the 23rd of August over at the Kibitz Room, which is on Fairfax Avenue in, in Los Angeles, just north of Beverly Boulevard. That's the Kibitz. It's right next to Cantor's Deli, um, and it's free. Uh, there's no uh, cover charge, and the parking is free on Sunday night. Sunday night, the 23rd at 1045, my set goes up, and I'm there at least once a month regularly. Now, you have a website, right? I have a website. My website is timrusswebpage.com, timrusswebpage.com. You can just Google my name. It's the very first thing that comes up. And you can find your gigs on All there? All my gigs are listed on my convention appearances, my music my music gigs, everything is on there. Now, do you tweet? Uh, on occasion, yes. It's, I let people know what I'm doing, typically through Twitter and also on Facebook as well. And what's your Twitter? Uh, Tim Russ 2 Okay. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I'm, my I'm, pleasure. I'm glad you made it. We uh, we had a confusion there. My guest is late and everything. Oh my goodness, yeah. It's just it's just you know it, the work of the day and you know all no this problem. stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so people follow him, Tim Rush too. Go to his <laughs> website. It's a very good website. Go check his music out because there's nothing like live music, especially if it's free. It makes it even better. Oh, you better. enjoy it. And also follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 400 episodes up on there. You can email me from there. It's cooper at coopertalk.net iTunes and Stitcher, one word, Cooper Talk. You can find me there. Also, if you have a uh, Android Android phone, go to the Google Play Store. You can get the Cooper Talk app and do that. And don't forget also my other website, StopTheSalt.com. You know, when I got out of the hospital with my heart problem, I wrote that cookbook, a low sodium cookbook. So there's 120 easy recipes to make. They won't, you know, if you don't know how to cook, look at this book. 
They're easy. There's no pictures. You won't be intimidated. There's no long list of ingredients. There's no cumin. You don't you need you don't have cumin? Don't worry about it. You can cook with it. And it's out there. So go buy that. You can get it at Amazon or you can go to my website. If you go to my website, I make more money and I'll sign it. So go to stopthesalt.com. Follow me on at Twitter. Go check out Tim Russ's uh, webpage. Follow him on Twitter. Go see him at the Kibitz Room. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys next week.